What's up, everybody? Welcome back to TMT Time, a podcast put on by the Technology Media Telecommunications Group here at Arlen Porter. I am your host, Evan Rothstein. I am delighted to be welcoming to the podcast today the second of our professor series, as I like to call it, the Big Brain series. And today we have an incredible guest who I, many of you follow on Twitter and LinkedIn, and I do, and that is Eric Goldman from the Santa Clara School of Law in California. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, you guys can't see this at home listening in, but Eric is channeling Baby Yoda right now in the background. And full disclosure, that plus some of his other blog posts is the reason why I invited Eric into the podcast, because I want to spend most of the time talking about nerd stuff. As you all know, I am somewhat of a tech nerd, and I think Professor Goldman here fits squarely into that bucket as well. I don't think you have to be nerdy to love Baby Yoda, but uh, I might be guilty as charged. So Eric has uh, quite an extensive following on social media. So the first thing I want to ask you, Eric, is, is that all you? Are you the one who is so aggressively in social media or is it your quote handlers or your kids or how are you so active online? <laughs> Wait, are you asking how I have so many followers? Because that's all Russian bots. Or are you asking how I actually produce the content? Because that is 100% me. Both. Is it really the <laughs> Russian bots? Because I was one. You have a lot. You are one of the most prolifically followed IP professors in the country, frankly, um, up there with some other very well-known professors in your space. So maybe it's Russian bots. Maybe it's your kids. I don't know who's putting the content out, but a lot of us are reading it. So where are you steering your interest these days? How are you doing this? Uh, well, just to be clear, my kids are not following me on social media. They don't follow me at home either. Uh, they have put the mute on me both metaphorically and uh, literally. So uh, yeah, my kids are not my followers. Um, but uh, look, uh, you know, I'm a professor. So what I do in life is I consume information. I try and make sense of it. And I try and cherry pick out the best stuff to share through social media. My philosophy going in was, let me pick the one or two most interesting things I've seen today and just share them. Um, and so it's like uh, all of you get a chance to sit on my shoulders and miss all the cruft and all the boring stuff and just get the interesting stuff. So you uh, post multiple times a day, I see. Uh, are you reading all day long and, and trolling the internet for interesting bits and tidbits? Or are you do you have like alerts set up? How are you getting your information? Well, yeah, I've definitely been accused of trolling the internet often, uh, but not in the way I think you meant. Um, so in terms of uh, information consumption, I do spend a lot of time reading online, um, uh, easily uh, four plus hours a day. Um, I have never really built a pie chart per se, but it's just, it is a substantial fraction of my day. And of course I don't have billable hour requirements. So it's my job, you know, I can do that without uh, having to account for it at the end of the year. Um, but I do have um, a variety of different ways I get my information. Um, I have email subscriptions. I have RSS subscriptions. And I trust your listeners are familiar with RSS. But if not, it's actually the thing they're looking for they never knew existed. Um, and then I have a lot of alerts set up in other databases. So, for example, I have alerts set up at Westlaw and Lexis and Bloomberg Law um, for various keywords. And so I'm constantly reviewing my Twitter feed and my RSS feed and my uh, email inbox and uh, the alerts that I'm getting. Um, and it all goes into this giant hopper of uh, information consumption. 
So you have a bit of an interesting background. You you did have a billable hour requirement at one point, and then you went in-house, and now you teach. How did you choose this path? How, how, how are you where you are right now? So I worked at a law firm uh, in the uh, 1990s. Um, it was a standard big law job. Um, I styled myself as an internet lawyer back then. I was a transactional guy, not a litigator. Um, so I was doing deals for internet companies. Um, and to be honest, I actually like that job. And I know a lot of people disparage big law and they don't feel comfortable um, uh, with it. Uh, but for me, actually, I had a great job and I really enjoyed what I did. Um, but I got a call from a headhunter saying uh, that uh, an internet company was looking to hire a general counsel and would I be interested? And it turns out that I was more interested in that company than I was in staying at the law firm. And so I made this decision to go in-house, um, not because I was unhappy with big law, but because I felt um, uh, like this was a chance for me to do something really important to me. Um, the story didn't work out as well, I as, well as I would have liked. Um, I did not uh, uh, see a future at uh, the internet company after uh, being there for a little bit over a year. And so I just had to figure out what my next career move was. And that's when I decided to evaluate becoming a professor. Very, very lucky to get the job I have. As you uh, may know, it's extremely competitive to get professor jobs. Um, and so uh, my ability to get one was actually really an important fork in my career development. And your department there at Santa Clara Law School in the IP space is actually very well known now. Uh, you just had one of your colleagues, I think, going to the Biden White House, the Biden administration, Colleen Chan, and you have, thank you very much, participated a number of times in the Silicon Flatirons program out here in Colorado. So we appreciate that. We'd love for you to come back again. Do you have further aspirations beyond professor? Do you want to go into a policymaking position? What do you think you're going to do next? Uh, you know, I'm at the point in my career where I've actually been able to answer that question with confidence. If you'd asked me 10 years ago, I'm not sure I would have felt as confident about my answer. Um, but I love what I do. And uh, it gives me kind of the best of all worlds. I get a chance to have a say on the things that matter to me. I get to pick which things I have a say on. And I can say uh, my most candid thoughts. And any other job that I might take, whether it's uh, in government or if it were back in the private sector, um, I wouldn't have any of those freedoms. Um, so I love my job. Frankly, I love my institution. I'm extremely lucky to be in the position I'm in. Does the institution meter and censor or not what you can say on your technology and marketing law blog, uh, including the hilarious photos and memes that you post, typically always mentioning something about science fiction, but are you uh, required to take certain things down or you have free reign on, on these uh, blog posts that you put up? So, uh, yeah, and there is also occasional profanity on the blog as well. Um, and the university has been incredibly supportive of the blogging that I do. And I've been tested in the sense that I've gotten complaints about my blog that have gone uh, to my superior, the dean, or even higher up in the university, up to the president and to the provost. Um, and at every fork in the road, at every stage at which uh, people have complained about my blog, the university has backed me 100%. So I have 100% academic freedom in what I do with my blog, and I know that the university has my back if challenged. So I, I will give a plug for you. Your technology and marketing law blog is blog.ericgoldman.org. If you listeners or don't read it, you should read it if you're in this space. 
Obviously, this is a TMT podcast, so his technology marketing law blog fits squarely in there, which is why he's on the podcast. Eric, I want to ask you about a couple things that you have posted about on the blog substantively. But before I get there, I did see on your Twitter feed that you were triggered by an, uh, I guess, random AT&T ad that says, you're not a bad professor, you might just need better internet. And some of you, if this is going to make the podcast, Eric had a difficult time getting his setup going on. So for a technology professor here, he uh, didn't make a great showing with the technology. So I don't know if that was also a triggering thing or you were having leftover thoughts from the uh, AT&T ad. What do you think? Yeah, so the way I describe it is that uh, technology law, I feel really good about technology and my ability to navigate it. I'm I'm not as strong as I could be. So uh, yeah, you saw me fiddling around with cords and USB ports and all that. And I was a little bit out of my element. But if you want to talk about the law of USB ports, I'm all ready to go. <laughs> all right, well, let's talk about something in the trademark space because you, you have written about this before in the past and I, I've had it come up in cases. Uh, and that is the initial interest confusion doctrine. Why don't you tell our listeners what it is and why it is rearing its ugly head again here in 2021? Yeah, and you can if if your listeners could see my Zoom feed, they would see that not only am I tearing up, but Baby Yoda is tearing up at the mere mention of the initial interest confusion doctrine. Um, and the doctrine uh, is actually a venerable one. It predates the internet. And the idea is that there's some kind of thing that a, uh, a, a second comer uses uh, um, a trademark to, to do to, to um, uh, boost its marketing appeal with the understanding that by the time the consumers transact, they're no longer confused. So there was some kind of defect in the marketing process that led consumers to think that there's some kind of affiliation relationship between the trademark owner and the second comer, um, but it all gets cured by the end. Um, and so when the people are actually paying the money, they're not confused. So you uh, go, in other words, you go into the store, you look at a product, you think, or you associate it with another product, but then when you look closer and you actually make the ultimate purchasing decision, you have clarified it and realized that's not the product or the brand that I thought it was. Yeah. And in a situation like that, actually, there might actually be no actionable confusion whatsoever. If you pick up uh, two items at the store, you're evaluating them, you're not sure about it. But by the time that you actually put that in the cart, you're clear about what you're buying and its relationship with the trademark. You might actually not have, there might not be any liability in that circumstance whatsoever. I think the better example, and this is something that, that I think was the initial genesis for the doctrine, was uh, bait and switch. The idea is you are um, uh, you know, told you can get this good from this trademark owner. If you just come into our store, you go into the store, that item's not available, but you're offered alternatives. Even if you know that there are alternatives, you still uh, 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 were um, diverted from your search process by that invitation to come into the store. Um, and so I don't know that that's actually something that trademark laws should govern. There might be other legal doctrines to govern, but I'm not sure trademark law is the right governing principle for that kind of bait and switch. But we would certainly recognize bait and switch as a problem. What happened is that the courts, especially the Ninth Circuit in 1999 case, took this notion about initial interest confusion well away from bait and switch. And they use a definition that basically says, if you do anything to capture initial consumer attention, that uh, diversion of glance 
that turning of the head um, is enough to constitute trademark infringement, even if by the time people are transacting, they're no longer confused. Um, and I think that it was that articulation that opened up this Pandora's box of really terrible trademark cases that were finding trademark infringement when there really was no harm to the consumer. And at most, maybe there was some harm to the producer, but not in a way that was antisocial. Things like consumers saying, now I realize there are two alternatives. I didn't realize that. Maybe I like the cheaper, higher quality one than the trademark owner's offerings. Um, we might say that sounds like a great deal for society, but the, but the trademark owner doesn't really like that because they just lost a sale. And so we've seen trademark law kind of torn apart at the seams between being a consumer protection doctrine, which initial interest confusion usually doesn't address, and a producer protection, protection doctrine, like it's advancing their monopoly interests. And so the initial interest confusion is really a, an, an anti-consumer doctrine, and it's really untethered from the basic principles that we normally associate with trademark law. It also leads to too many lawsuits because the doctrine obviously helps plaintiffs and is so nebulous, it's difficult to prove, but it's hard to disprove if you're on the defendant's side. It's hard to get survey evidence to, to show it. And so my understanding was the doctrine has sort of died recently. Uh, but the I've Eighth declared Circuit... its death many times over the years. Yeah, uh, right. said, Initial interest confusion is dead. Hooray. And then, dot, dot, then dot. we have, <laughs> that's right. Then we have the decision out of a, a circuit court of appeals, no less, uh, that somewhat revives it. And of course, I'm talking about the Eighth Circuit decision that you blogged about. Tell us what happened in this case about mattresses uh, and why potentially it's back in 2021, at least at the uh, panel level. Yeah, so uh, the case is Select uh, uh, Comfort versus Baxter. And it's just this horrible, horrible um, uh, litigation battle royale among uh, mattress vendors. Um, and in my blog post, I mentioned how awful it is to blog cases involving mattress vendors, because that entire industry is just seedy and a little bit uh, sketchy. And, uh, and they just seem to have more money than God to spend on litigation. Um, and so uh, in this battle royale, uh, the uh, trademark owner came after uh, the second comer um, saying initial interest confusion, as you pointed out, it's kind of hard to be wrong about that because nobody really knows what it is. So just toss it in. It probably won't work, but it costs you very little to, to argue it. Um, and the Eighth Circuit basically said, sure, Initial interest confusion is absolutely on the table. Um, and uh, we had never said this before in, a in the Eighth Circuit, but it is a circuit law that the initial interest confusion doctrine uh, is a valid do doctrine to argue. Um, and in this case, that was dispositive because it sends it back down to the district court to then uh, uh, to deal with whether or not there was initial interest confusion here. We don't know that, but, the, but we get this sweeping pronouncement about the uh, vitality of the initial interest confusion doctrine in the Eighth Circuit, when, as you pointed out, in most other places, it had been dying either a, a quiet or in some cases, noisy death. So what is going to happen next? Are we going to get an en banc petition and try and get this reversed? Or is it going to go back down to the district court and they're going to do discovery and have probably not very helpful survey evidence to try and prove this initial interest confusion, which is difficult to track? I mean, how do you, how do you survey for that? 
nobody really knows what initial confusion is. So it's really hard to come up with a good survey. And, and there's been plenty of academic literature about whether or not we can uh, find evidence of initial interest confusion among consumers in a way that should be legally actual. And this, the, the empirical uh, research in this is pretty damning, honestly, for the doctrine. It just doesn't really exist. It's a judicial construct um, that is divorced from any empirical evidence. So God bless the defense litigators who are going to have to try and come up with a survey to disprove it um, if they take that route, because, because I mean, they already have all that evidence and the court doesn't seem to care. Um, I don't know if it's going to go up on bonk. Um, I think it's a good candidate for going up on bonk. Um, and yet, as an academic, I don't get to make that decision. I just have to go where the litigants take us. But will you, if it does go up on bonk, weigh in with an amicus brief uh, on behalf of professors? Is that something that interests you? Do you do that often? I don't actually, just because I wasn't a litigator by training. Um, and uh, as a result, uh, it's actually quite hard for me to write a good brief. Um, but uh, but actually, there was a petition filed. I can't now remember if it was for the rehearing or for the rehearing on Bonk. Um, and they cited my blog post in it. So I felt like I already kind of had my say. And if you remember the title, uh, the title is pretty inflammatory. So I'm sure the judges are going to raise an eyebrow uh, when they see uh, just the title of my blog post. You, you did violate a number of uh, journalistic canons on usage of exclamation points or question marks. You had quite a few question marks in your blog post title, I noticed, uh, in multiple instances, actually. Uh, that's Although, actually I, to be fair, there was no profanity there, and that was actually a restrained move on my part. There was just uh, a, number, <laughs> a number of uh, Star Wars-based memes uh in the post you know what i found interesting actually somebody commented i think in the in the notes in the to the post that and i didn't even realize this the eighth circuit also doesn't recognize the rogers versus grimaldi test either so what what is the eighth circuit doing because it's not, it's actually not an area of the country where you see a number of media related trademark type cases come out so the, the judges seem to have gone uh overboard here so maybe maybe we'll get it dialed back and i will plug that we do file amicus briefs. So if you have interest and this does get accepted on Bonk, maybe we could find a client, uh, maybe who we could uh, get you uh, in front of the Eighth Circuit. Well, I'd love to have you rip into it. Uh, we did kind of hide the ball on your listeners though. So let me go ahead and read the title of my blog post just so they understand why we said that. And you have to understand in text, of course, there won't be the vocal inflections, but I'm gonna add them for emphasis. Uh, the title of blog post is, Eighth Circuit embraces the initial interest confusion doctrine. What? Three question marks. Ugh. No. Why? Dash select comfort uh, v Baxter. So uh, there were a total of six question marks between the what and the why. And there's also the ugh in all caps. Yeah. So we had, we had a podcast uh, guest on here. She's in the media industry. She's a reporter. And she said that you're never supposed to use multiple uh, exclamation points or question marks, uh, which is why I said you violated those canons. But look, it's a blog. You can do whatever you want. Well, and as I said, if I had dropped some profanity in there, that would have been even more problematic. Um, but honestly, this exactly is kind of like those five stages of grief, um, or, you know, the five stages of uh, recovering from grief. You know, the what? Ugh. No. Why? All right. Okay. Now I get it. <laughs> that's, that's, see, look, I'm glad you explained that because to me, it just sounded like, ugh. Really? <laughs> that's, that's what I read. When, really? We're bringing initial interest confusion back? Why? Well, you mentioned the Star Wars meme and what I have after quoting the, the core part of the 
uh, Eighth Circuit's opinion, basically saying what initial interest confusion is using language that's 20 plus years old as I have uh, the uh, meme, uh, Princess Leia, when the deal was changed on her um, uh, and she says, what? Um, but of course there's no sound. So you just see Princess Leia say, what? And that's exactly how I felt. I, I, Princess Leia and I were in kinship on that one. Well, like I said at the beginning, you have Baby Yoda in your background. Did, incidentally, I assume you liked the Manchuri. Uh, I think you mean the Mandalorian. Uh, oh, the Mandalorian, and, sorry. Uh, yeah, I, I will tell you. Actually, I haven't had a chance to watch it. Um, uh, we don't actually have Disney, uh, so I haven't gone there. But even without seeing the show, I do love Baby Yoda. I mean, come on, he's like so a, cute. There's and another. So, yeah, Baby Lord, Yoda's a a legend in our household, even if we aren't uh, totally up to speed on his activities. My son actually just built the Baby Yoda Lego set. He loves the Mandalorian. Did you, uh, did the rest of your family share in your, your Star Wars nerdism? So uh, my daughter, when she was eight years old, went to one of these summer camps. And one of the first things they did at summer camp, I think it was something like, what Star Trek character are you? And she didn't know the answer to that. So she came home that day and she said, daddy, what's Star Trek? And you know, that's like the moments we live for as dads, because she asked me to teach her about Star Trek. So, you know, what we did immediately. We fired up the first uh, 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 original series and we watched all those episodes by about halfway through Next Generation. You know, there's 180 episodes of that. That's a lot to watch. Um, uh, my daughter kind of checked out, but my son stuck with me um, through that. But then by the time we got to uh, Deep Space Nine, uh, they were both out um, and I had to go on my own. Um, and my daughter told me actually, uh, you know, in this Star Trek, Star Wars uh, divide, she's on the Star Wars side. Um, but I don't know. It might be that after the last three uh, episodes, um, that might be waning a little bit. Uh, Disney really drove that franchise pretty deep into the ground. Yeah, I, you know what? Look, I watched all of the original Star Trek with my dad and all the original uh, Next Generation with Jean-Luc Picard with my dad and Deep Space Nine with my dad. So I'm more on the Star Trek side. My son, on the other hand, is on the Star Wars side. I'm trying to get him off of that. And I think I agree with you. The, proje the trajectory of the movies lately uh, may be helping me because frankly, the new Star Trek movies with Chris Pine are better. And more interesting. Yeah, they're not really Star Trek to me. They're really more like uh, just an action adventure in, in space <laughs> using the characters we love. But, um, you know, uh, uh, the whole Star Wars franchise has been rocky. Some really high points and some not so great points. All right. Before, before we run out of time, I want to get one more substantive issue with you. And that is Section 230, uh, which you seem to blog and write about a lot. So I wanted to hit that before we leave leave each other. Uh, and I want to focus on what you uh, made a post about Florida's attempt to regulate the internet uh, in Section 230 and, and sort of clamp down on free speech. And I'm sure you've read the Trump or Biden decision out of the Supreme Court, or the non-decision, if you will, uh, when they punted since Trump was no longer president, and Clarence Thomas's dissent, where he wants to regulate the internet through the uses of common carrier law or antitrust law. I'd love to get your thoughts on Thomas's dissent and where you think the jurisprudence is going to go related to Section 230 uh, and the regulation of speech and content on the internet. 
Um, so I'm guessing your audience is mostly familiar with Section 230, but let's just make sure we don't miss the basics here. Section 230 says that websites aren't liable for third-party content, and it's been the foundation of our modern internet. If you look at the things that we, uh, the services that we use on day-to-day, hour-by-hour, even minute-by-minute basis, um, they're all benefiting from Section 230, including the fact we're conducting this call on Zoom. Zoom benefits from Section 232. Um, so uh, Section 230 is a really foundational law um, that has enabled the things that we love uh, about the internet, and uh, it's coming under withering attack from all sides. Uh, this is a bipartisan consensus that they hate Section 230, but for different reasons. But certainly Trump's uh, um, attacks on Section 230 in the last year of his uh, presidency were very, very damaging. They gave a uh, um, uh, uh, impetus to just a wide ranging set of efforts to try and undermine free speech on the internet. Um, and so even with Trump out of the office, his, uh, his legacy is basically all these efforts to censor uh, uh, the internet services and to tell them how to run their businesses. Um, so one of the legacies of Trump's gasoline pouring on Section 230 was uh, Justice Thomas's uh, comments that he issued in a, uh, a, um, in a, uh, a uh, the case where they dis- uh, um, uh, rejected uh, another opinion as moot. He used that as an opportunity to basically talk about Section 230 when that just wasn't part of uh, the um, uh, the case. And he basically lays out this roadmap for others to follow. He says, well, maybe we could censor directly. I don't know. Uh, First Amendment, who cares? But you can get around it by saying, uh, we're going to think, uh, call the internet services common carriage. And once we do that, the internet, the, the First Amendment just doesn't apply to them. It's, or, it's a public we'll, space, right? We can regulate it. Well, a common carriage is basically like we're the government basically tells that business how to run um, and can do so, um, including in things that involve speech like telephony or in the old days, telegraphs. There was literally a whole governance structure for how those businesses can operate. Um, but then Thomas said, and if that's not good enough, try another door. Try the argument that internet services are places of public accommodation and then sue the bastards for anti-discrimination law violations, that they're basically, they're breaking the law because they're making editorial decisions about what content to publish or not, how to feature it or not. Um, and so he just gives us roadmap uh, to the world saying, you got one vote ready to burn down not only Section 230, but burn down the internet. Let's just go ahead and just torch that. Um, and so we're seeing now between Trump's gasoline pouring and then uh, Thomas Lay the match, we're seeing a lot of efforts throughout the country to take advantage of this thinking and saying, let's do that, including Florida, which passed this social media regulation law that really is basically let's censor the internet services and tell them exactly how they need to run their business. Um, and in their findings, they say, we're going to say that internet services are quote common carriers. Um, they don't actually explain what even common carriers, uh, uh, what that phrase means. And as you and I both know, that phrase is not really uh, 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 clear um, without further definition. Um, but they say, okay, we've done what Thomas has asked. We've called them common carriers. We now regulate the crap out of them. Um, let's go home. Um, and uh, and so we have a battle on our hands against things like the Florida law, against things like Justice Thomas's statements, against the legacy of Trump statements, 
um, to actually for the soul of the internet. I, you know, many of your listeners might assume I love the internet and, and it's of course gonna only get better, right? And absolutely the people that we're paying with our tax dollars are working to make it worse. All right, so what's the next step? What's the next thing that's gonna happen with it? Do you think there's gonna be more state-based law? Do you think Congress gonna to have to come back in and bolster section 230? Like what's gonna happen next? What's going to happen next is that we're in the fight of the internet's life right now. And we have to win on all fronts to continue to enjoy the internet the way that we currently do. And that includes not only uh, that includes uh, battling at the at the congressional level. Congress has dozens of bills proposing to reform Section 230, not to make it better, but to make it worse. Um, or uh, to do other kinds of regulations that basically eviscerate Section 230. State legislatures are working on uh, uh, trying to uh, uh, basically tell internet services how to run their business. That's what Florida did. But just uh, yesterday, California's assembly passed a bill that's not that dissimilar to Florida, even though California is supposed to be a blue state and maybe Florida's a red state. I don't know what Florida is. Um, it doesn't really matter anymore. Uh, the states are very busy. And then there's the legal challenges that are going on in court. And there's a bunch of them that are taking place. We have to fight those as well if we expect to have the internet as we currently enjoy it. Um, so it's a multi-front battle. That's why I spend so much time blogging about Section 230 and talking about Section 230, um, because if any one of these uh, levers succeeds, um, we are looking at a very different internet and one that I'm going to be sad to uh, experience. Our content is suppressed and channeled, voices are channeled in certain directions and you have... I mean, it's really control. the reasons why we hate censorship. It will be the government telling uh, uh, publishers how to publish. This is something that we, that was like way up there on the list of things that we're willing to go and grab the bayonets against uh, and the muskets against the British for. They can't tell us what to say and how to talk to each other. And that's what the government is fighting for like to do with the help of so many of the people here in the United States saying, cheering that on, saying, yes, let's go ahead and hand over uh, the freedoms that we have today uh, that we had to fight for with bayonets and muskets to get. I can assure you that this podcast is probably uh, at the tip of the bayonet of some of these folks, <laughs> given the things that we talk about. All right, Professor, we don't have much time left, so I, I want to ask you a couple questions that I love to ask my guests. I know you don't have Disney and you don't stream that, but you did say you have Netflix. What's the last thing that you've watched? What are you watching right now? Uh, oh, let's see. Uh, what are we uh, watching? Um, you know, I'm kind of... Uh, the last thing I watched was The Last Dance, um, which was uh, the um, uh, the documentary on uh, the uh, 98 uh, Chicago Bulls team. Um, I love that. And, You're the first person that said that. I loved that. I actually really liked it, too. Um, and, you know, it's kind of nostalgic. Uh, and my wife watched half of it, but she got bored by uh, about halfway through. So she checked out of that one and I had to finish <laughs> one up. I'm, I'm now working on uh, Star Trek Voyager. Um, which uh, I finally got through Deep Space Nine after getting through the next generation. These are, you know, uh, there's like 180 episodes for each of these. These take me a very long time. So right now I'm about halfway through Voyager as well. That's another thing that I'm working on. I haven't gotten, I actually have not gotten through Voyager. I should probably break that up. Uh, the first three seasons were really slow, but I've gotten to season four and it's finally picking up a little bit. Um, but, you know, I felt a little bit like that about Deep Space Nine. Um, the first couple seasons, I think, were just okay. But boy, it really culminated in those seasons, uh, uh, last couple of seasons, they really, I think, put, tied it all together in a very satisfying way. So I'm hoping Voyager is like that. We'll see. Um, but it's taken me years to get through it. 
I have actually, I watched Deep Space Nine so long ago, I don't even remember how it ended. Um, it, it's actually, it. they did a really good job at the end. Those last two seasons or so, they just brought on some top-notch script writers who understood the characters well, and um, it, it, was, uh, it was well done. Um, so, you know, you'll hear some people say that actually Deep Space Nine is their favorite of all Star Trek series. And the reason why is it doesn't, it, it, it's a little bit of a hybrid between kind of the braininess of Next Generation and the, uh, the action of uh, the first uh, original series. And so it kind of, you know, uh, checks off both boxes in a way that each of the two prior series, uh, I think, struggled to, to balance. You know how people say that Major League Baseball and baseball is generational and that folks that watch baseball, they're all getting up in age and they're all going to die and baseball is going to die on the vine. Do you feel like that also applies to Star Trek? Do you feel it's people in our generation are like close to us and that there's just not an appreciation for it anymore? Yeah, yeah, it's a really good question. Obviously, I'm of the area where uh, that was our model of science fiction and what the world could be like. And there was a certain utopianism to uh, to Star Trek. There weren't the same kind of petty squabbles that I was experiencing in my life as a high schooler um, in this future that I could see in Star Trek. Um, but I'll tell you, boy, it was really tough to sell to my Gen Z kids. Um, you know, especially the original series, it was uh, just the production values were not uh, what they're used to. And it, it was really hard to translate for them. So, uh, you know, I do fear that, uh, that uh, you know, time has moved on that way, at least for the original series. Um, and, you know, I'm guessing the next generation is, is going to suffer the same fate. Yeah, if it's not on YouTube or there's no, no YouTube show on it, my kids are, are tuning out very quickly. Well, my kids actually have a, a categorical rule, which doesn't apply here, but uh, you get the point. Uh, they won't watch anything that was originally in black and white, just categorically. It's like, that's just, that's just too old. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't exist to them if it's just in black and white. Yeah, we're, my wife is constantly saying, let's watch this movie. And, and I'm like, well, it's from the 90s. I don't think they're going to watch it. Well, we've been working on some of the 80s movies. And, you know, it's just cringeworthy with all the gratuitous nudity, nudity and, yeah. uh, well, and F-bombs that uh, don't yes. really need to be there. And, you know, we're watching with my kids who are teens. So it's not like it's totally uh, out of bounds for them. But still, we're just all shaking our heads saying, you know, come on. You could have made, you could have skipped all that and made the movie better. We watched The Predator, which is an awesome movie. Movie, but there's so much gratuitous cussing in that movie my wife kept and i kept looking at each other like really they have to use that again <laughs> some of the word language choices are like man you can't really say that anymore we don't want to expose them to it Those yeah it's just heartbreaking canceled. how time has changed so uh you know some of these classics just they just haven't aged very well and you're absolutely right then about this notion it is somewhat generational the stuff that spoke to me as a gen xer just doesn't speak to gen z they just they're speaking a different language all right professor we are we got to wrap it up we're out of time i really appreciate this this has been great discussion uh maybe we'll get you back on here once the initial interest fusion doctrine dies at the on bonk or wherever else but really appreciate your time listeners obviously Subscribe, hit the like button, smash the like button, go to Eric's blog, read about it, follow him on Twitter. Uh, thank you very much for your time, Professor. So glad to be here. Thanks for uh, having this conversation.